Welcome to the Guardian Mindset Podcast presented by attorney Eric Daigle. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Guardian Mindset Podcast. And this one's going to be a hot one, I can promise you. Uh, it started in 2015 with my first article, to watch or not to watch? That is the question. And I got to tell you, I never expected that eight years later, we'd still be having this conversation with as much energy as we did when it initially started somewhere around 2015. I'd also like to uh, welcome Dr. Paul Taylor, who's been a guest on this podcast multiple times. Uh, Dr. Taylor, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, Eric. How are you doing? Well, you know, I'm good to have you. I'm happy to have you next to me in this battle and because it has become a little bit of a battle. It's sad that it is a battle, but we don't want it to be a battle. Um, we were also supposed to have uh, Grant Fredericks on with us today, but unfortunately he came down with COVID and his family and um, because we wanted to cover this from three perspectives. So two of us are going to cover it from three perspectives, and that is legal, legal, uh, physiological or human factors, and then very basically video of today. So let me start off a little bit just to introduce Dr. Taylor. For those of you that that have not heard him before on our podcast, um, I, I met him as one of the lead instructors uh, for Science uh, Institute under the certification course. Uh, he was uh, my instructor for the, the advanced uh, uh, class. Uh, he has about 10 years, more than 10 years of practical law enforcement experience, including uh, time as a department training manager, patrol sergeant, use of force instructor. Uh, he has been training officers from multiple levels and then took it to the next level, which is his PhD, where he focuses on law enforcement research and training across the United States and regularly presents uh, at both academic and practitioner conferences. In fact, we are very honored to have him at the Use of Force Summit every year uh, as a keynote instructor and uh, the Association for Force Investigators as a a, uh, a section, uh, as a, a breakout section for our conference. And he also trains at our Internal Affairs Advanced Training Course. All right. So, Doug, let's talk about body-worn cameras. Now, the issue on the table, and I'm going to start off and then turn it over to to Dr. Taylor, is we're focusing, and, and I'm going to ask you for a favor, and I always do this, and I think Paul does the same thing. When I ask you a question, the question's really simple. Do you allow your officers, or more importantly, you officers, will you write your report your use of force report without watching the video. All right. Now I want to focus a couple of things because people go all over the place here. Right? We're talking about use of force and use of force only. And I know people say, well, that's ridiculous. And well, there's no law that says you can't watch a domestic violence video, but there is a law that says you shouldn't watch a use of force video. And also within the world of use of force, there's going to be deadly force, OISs, and there's going to be non-deadly force. And, and so, you know, you, most of you, uh, uh, hopefully, thankfully, won't be involved in a deadly force incident. 
So where this affects you is more on a daily basis when you're writing your use of force report in response to using a weapon system or hands-on hard hands application. And Paul, is that a fair way to categorize this to start? I think it's a fair way to categorize it. You you say it's a simple question. I would I would argue we've made it far more complex than it needs. Not us, but I think as a profession, we've made it far more complex than we need to make it. Yeah, I, I do agree. And so what I'm going to ask you is whatever your automatic reaction was to that question, because there's really only two, and this is what we're going to talk about. There's the Yes, you have to watch the video. And, and or no, I'm good. I'm not going to watch the video. Now, I'm going to start out with how I got here. And I've written three articles on this subject. And you can just Google watch or not to watch that is a question, you know, pop up. And I know Dr. Taylor has dealt with this in multiple aspects, but I'm going to start with how I got it. So it's 2015. It's after the shooting death of Michael Brown and body-worn cameras are being rushed into Ferguson like they are going to solve all the problems, right? Uh, To the point where even the ACLU is saying body-worn cameras are the future of police transparency. Now, you know know what ACLU says now about body-worn cameras, right? Now they say that there's privacy issues. But in 2015... Body-worn cameras are going to save all the problems. And realistically, hopefully, as Paul and I know, they're not going to save any problems. But I will tell you on myself and give Paul an opportunity, I think body-worn cameras have become very effective, especially since the officer's ability to articulate and write English has gone down. The body-worn camera has done a great job of showing physiological responses which the officer has never done a very good job of, of articulating in the report. What do you think, Paul? Well, I think it's an incredibly important piece of evidence. I don't think it does what uh, what uh, legislators and uh, possibly creators of, of these systems and, and those who are implementing them want them to do. We've kind of doubled down on behaviorism as a way to try to control outcomes. And, and there's a lot of evidence to say that that just does it work? And and now we have a lot of evidence in policing that that hasn't changed outcomes significantly in policing. We we essentially have the same outcomes that that we've had, uh, despite uh, all the body worn cameras, consent decrees, and and everything else that have been put into place over the last last um, ten years. Um, and so I, I'm 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 on the same page with you there, absolutely. And and let me take this let me take this down just a level. You you started the question off saying if we're administrators. Are, are we going to allow officers to watch the video or not to watch the video? Let me let me take it to another level. At the point where I am now, if my son were to get into policing and he were to ask my advice, he probably wouldn't. But if you were to ask my yeah. advice, Dad, should I watch body-worn camera footage before I write use of force reports? I would tell my son he should not watch body-worn camera footage before he watch, he, he writes his use of force reports or gives a statement about a high-level use of force case. Um, I would, and I would do the same thing if I got it back into policing, uh, today. Um, and, and we'll probably talk about the reasons, but from my perspective, that's, that's how much, that's how strongly I feel about it at this, this point, I would advise people that I care about more than life itself 
uh, if they were involved in these cases, uh, that that they should not watch uh, video footage of the event prior to giving a statement or writing a report. Now, we have some explaining to do on that, but I will tell you the exact same thing and how strongly I feel about it. In the state of Connecticut, where I can represent officers involved in deadly force shootings, I will ask them whether or not they watched the video. And if they did, I will probably not take their case. Mm. That's, that's as strong as I feel about it because you cannot unring that bell. Uh, so listen, let's, let's, let's be clear here. Body worn cameras is not something new. We had dash cameras. We had witnesses with cell phones. Video has always been a part of use of force analysis for decades. The, the body worn camera, I think just is a benefit to the officers. So how I got involved in this is that 2015 IACP, International Chiefs of Police Associate, I'm walking around and I'm listening to everybody that I respect, uh, people that I learned how to be me from. And, and everybody's saying, gotta watch the video. Gotta watch the video. Gotta watch it. Not only your video, you gotta watch all videos. Now, I'll be honest with you. I didn't have a response at that time. I didn't know better. And I wasn't hanging out with Dr. Taylor. So, but I, I, so I would just do what I normally do. And I would just ask a question. Why? And the answer is what I didn't like. The answer was, you gotta, it's the right thing to do. And I'm like, I don't know about that. Is that, is that what you saw Paul too? Same evolution for me. Uh, I, I think if while I was working in policing, um, I, my and body worn camera footage were being introduced to departments around me, my my immediate response would have been, well, if if you watch video for every other report that you write, why would you not watch video for a use of force case that you're involved in? There, what you do, Fair. um, and, and and so that that was that would have been my thought process until I started looking at memory and and how people remember things and. I started reading and, and analyzing cases in which officers had had watched their video uh, and written report after the fact, and and that's where um, really I, it started to, to to change my mind. And and now I'm to the point where, you know, I, I used to be of the opinion, well, listen, if you're working in a jurisdiction in which we're going to hold officers accountable if their statement doesn't align with the video, then you got to show it to them. But but even then, those cases rise beyond that jurisdiction. Every, every single time. And, and it's so critical to understanding that officer's decision-making that, that I'm, I'm, I'm very firmly in the court that officers should not watch video prior to writing or giving use of force statements. Now let's, let's add to that in the aspect of I'm actually to the point now where it's not about bosses or command staff choosing this for you. The one thing that I want from everyone that's listening to this is that this is a profession. This is a very interesting analysis and you have to do the homework. You have to know when the investigator comes to investigate and, and interview you and says, would you like to watch the video? This is on you. This is not on anybody else. So a lot of times our biggest pushback might come from union uh, attorneys Yes, because it's great to see everything and know everything. 
but nobody is asking the question, what effect does this have after you do it? So, so at that time, I was the IACP legal officer section chair. And that answer wasn't sitting well with me. So I went back to the legal officer section. I said, listen, I'd like to start doing some research, which is, was something the section wants to do. And they said, yes. So I went to the psychological section because at that time, I didn't have Dr. Taylor to go to. I hadn't met him yet. And I went to the psych doctors and I just asked them a very simple question. Does anybody know for 100% what happens to memory when you watch a video? Now, unfortunately, the psych doctors were very honest with me and said, listen, we can't plug a monitor into your brain. We don't know exactly what happens, but there's a lot of studies out there. And this is where Dr. Taylor comes in. Because at this point, I had done the five-day four science class. And what you know from the five-day four science class, when you end the five-day four science class, you haven't learned a damn thing. The only thing you learn is you're confused and that our memory is terrible, <laughs> right? So now I go to somebody like Dr. Taylor and say, okay, and now it's Dr. Taylor's time. What do we know about the effect of watching a video on our memory recall? And that's where the, that's, I think, the most important part of this. So I'm going to turn that over to Dr. Taylor to run away with. Yeah. Memory is a constructive process. It, it, it's not in, listen, if you've been to an interview class, you've, you've seen a slide that says uh, memory is not like a video recording. Um, and and we, we've seen that. It, but most of the time, we still treat it as if it is. Memory is not. It, it's, a, it's an interconnected, complex a network of, of of perceptions, and those perceptions include light input through our eyes, sound put in through our ears. We smell things, we taste things, we touch things, and we feel emotions. And all of those things are tied together in memory, and they're actually in different parts of our brain. Right? It's going to different parts of our brain. When we recall an event, we're recalling those perceptions and putting them together in something that makes sense. And, and so memory is, it's important to note that memory is not the event itself, right? It, it is, again, it's those perceptions and it's far more ordered than the event was itself. Oftentimes uh, it's far more linear than the event was itself. And so again, it's a constructive process. We're bringing it together uh, and we're reconstructing it when we're retelling it. Uh, and, and, and so uh, if it wasn't something that we perceived in the moment uh, or that was, added to our memory later on, that it was not part of our memory. Uh, and so that our, that perception, it's, I would argue, is critical to understanding these events, but they don't reflect a video of the event, which is capturing, as we know, not everything that happens. There's, there's some flaws with video. It, you know, we're only getting uh, the event at a certain frame rate. There, there are issues with video, and Grant's not here to talk about them, so I'm not going to go too far down that path. But we know there's issues with video, but it's far more complete and it's capturing far more than an officer's perception of the event is capturing. And so that officer experiences those things. And I would argue that's an important piece of evidence. If the officer watches video, they're now not experiencing that event. They're watching it from a third party perspective. They're seeing things that likely were not part of their memory at all. And we're contaminating, we're contaminating that memory um, at a level that the officer may not even know. 
and we run the risk of the officer seeing things that 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 uh, they may try to explain, or worse, just like they write a report um, regularly. So a DUI stop, we want to record that. We want to capture everything that happens in that event. And when the officer writes the report, they're watching the video and they're writing, "This is what happened." The officer is now writing a use of force report or they're giving their statement and they give the statement the same way. This is what happened from a third party perspective. And it's changed. It's not their memory of the event. It's not their perception of what occurred in the moment. It's now that uh, third party viewing of the event from the outside. And, and so we actually change details. We change what was important to the officer. We change uh, uh perspectives we may fill in blanks for officers from from a memory standpoint and and now the officer is telling us about what they see in the video rather than what they actually experienced in the moment now the danger then people are saying well what's the problem with that right but the danger in that is now once the officer describes everything that happens in the video we're no longer capturing that decision making process we're capturing what happened in the video which is evidence we already have by the way right and now the officer's decision-making process may no longer make sense in light of all of that other information. And, and, and so the officer actually runs a huge risk in doing that because now they're saying, I was aware of all of these things. And now force may no longer be justified. Force may no longer be reasonable within the context of everything in that video. And we're no longer capturing that officer's individual memory of the event. I would argue that we're contaminating critical evidence when we show that officer video, when we provide them post-event information like that, uh, we're contaminating that evidence, we're changing that officer's memory. Um, and so again, it's a constructive uh, process. Some research has been done on 9-11, on right? And our memory of 9-11. And, 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 and so we, we all, most of us who lived through that time, and, and now I've got undergraduate students who, who were born after 9-11. Yeah, he too. Very discouraging for me. Uh, it makes me feel very old. But most of us re can remember with crystal clear clarity what we were doing the moment we learned that 9-11 was happening, that the towers had been attacked. Yep. But the research shows that for most of us, it's not, it's not accurate. And the reason it's not accurate is because we've relived that event over and over again. We've watched multiple uh, reiterations of the towers coming down. We've seen coverage of that over and over again. And for most of us, we've added to that memory. We've we've changed that memory. And the more that we contaminate that, you know, the less it reflects the actual decision-making process and perception of the officer in the moment. And so at this point, I, I just, I, I feel very strongly that we shouldn't be showing um, officers video prior to giving a statement. Yes. So let me see if I got your class right. See if I learned. I was, see if I was a good student, Doctor Taylor. All right? I big, but what people need to understand is that when they get into this argument with me, I say to them, "You realize it's just not about the video. It's any stimuli." So, would you agree with that? I I, I would. Uh, we're not gonna we're not we're not gonna eliminate contamination. That's that's not gonna happen. But, but we can minimize contamination from the event itself. And things like walkthroughs and videos prior to giving that statement are going to contaminate that memory. Right. And so I'll give an example on a very simple basis because uh, I, I don't have Dr. Taylor's credentials. When I'm explaining this to people, I say this. 
if I have an officer call me in the middle of the night involved in an officer-involved shooting, I handle them the exact same way because I've listened to the the science. I they I say, hey, have you called your spouse? Yes. Uh, have you made your notifications? Yes. Okay, now listen and listen carefully. You're going to shut off your cell phone. You're going to give it to your buddy partner. You're going to travel to the department. You're going to sit in a room by yourselves. You're not going to engage in any conversations about this event until I get there. And so it's not any different of any other stimuli than it is for the video. Is that is that a fair analysis? But no, that's, that's absolutely true. And and I would be particularly careful of stimuli that d- relates directly back to the event itself, right? Because that's where we're going to get the, the 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 most contamination. But yes. Yeah, I mean, we've been on... We've both been on the job. You know what's happening. There's people sending text messages, hey, there's a knife there, you're good, or or hey, don't worry, the car was not where it was supposed to be. But it, that, all of that is where, where people think that's needed to survive the process. It's yep. detrimental to the perception or the memory mining. Yep. Fair? Absolutely. Absolutely. So Dr. Taylor's side on memory... And then we'll go to one step further. And, and I think, Doc, you can talk a little bit about this because you do have expertise. But one of the things that I, Graham would come out and say, and I can't speak for him, he's not here, that video mechanisms, the, the mechanical operation of video has a lot of failures. I know I can say that I have seen video and use of force incidents that have had dropped video frames and or or video recording issues and so i i take that's exactly what he's talking about would you is that something you've experienced doc Uh, absolutely i mean we're capturing most of what happens within the field of view of that camera but we're capturing it in still images in rapid succession and so there are spaces between those still images and sometimes uh different types of cameras and different types of recording have different gaps uh, and sometimes there are drop frames, there are repeat frames. And so there there are anomalies within video that, that mean that we shouldn't trust it as absolute truth, but it is a fairly accurate representation in most instances of what has occurred within that camera's field of view. I mean, one of the things that I'm intrigued by is the fact that this this is not your grandmother's video camera. It doesn't work the same way. It's now, you know, two inches by four inches and it holds over eight hours of video. How do you think it got a, it gets eight hours of video into RAM? It's not taking a picture, a picture, a picture, a picture. And, it, and if, you, if you're an investigator, you definitely have to go to a video school to understand more about video. Because that's why we say video is good, but it has no more value than anybody else's perception. Uh, the witnesses, the crime scene, the video is the video. And I would point to, and I think you were still at Four Science when this was written, uh, Dr. Taylor, but Four Science put out training bulletin 265, which talked about the 10 limitations of body-worn camera. And so while we don't have an expert on the call specifically about video, there is a lot of research out there that shows that the camera doesn't record at the speed of light. Uh, the danger cues are responding. It sees better than you do. It hears better than you do. Dark light, low light conditions, 
Uh, it's a 2D recording versus a 3D recording. Uh, there is, it doesn't follow your eyes. It doesn't feel physiological responses to stressful events. Would you agree with all those? All of those things. And, and it's not focused on what you're focused on. It, it's not walking into the event with the pre-event information that you're walking into that event with. So all, all of these things play play a role. I, I would say this, and, it, and it's important. The physical evidence we collect from the scene has limitations on telling us what happened. Uh, the video of the event has limitations on, on, on what it tells us about what happened. And the officer's perception, witness perception, and memory for the event have limitations to what it can tell us. They're all critical pieces of evidence. The fact, the fact is we shouldn't try to fit all of them and make them all the same. We should understand that they each contribute an important piece to the overall puzzle of what has occurred. Uh, and there are weaknesses and flaws to, to, to all of them, uh, but each uh, has an important piece uh, for, for, for understanding the event. And like you said, Paul, the, the challenges that we get here is, well, we can watch every other video. You're right, you can. And then oftentimes there was a while where we were getting a challenge from ACLU and, and groups that were saying, well, listen, you don't let a criminal suspect watch their video before they give you a statement. And we're like, okay, hold on a second. The, the issue that we're talking about here is very simple. And, and and for me, the science supports the law. The video me mechanisms support the law. And so what's the law? Well, just very simply, you can go back to Graham versus Connor and its application that perception of the officer is what matters. The threat assessment of the officer is what matters. What the officers believed a reasonable officer believed at the time they made the decision to use the level of force that they used. Now, one of the things that is helps us double down on this, Paul, is that in June 28th, 2021, the Supreme Court issued a per curiam decision, which means it's not a full decision, but it was a as actually a it's actually an Eighth Circuit kickback, and the Supreme Court kicked back this case called Lombardo versus the city of St. Louis to the Eighth Circuit because they didn't properly evaluate by using precedent of the law, Graham versus Connor, in conducting analysis. And the court came back and said, when evaluating an officer's use of force, there are still four things that are important. Number one, facts and circumstances. So that's the whole scene, everything that's out there, uh, the witness statements, the the videos, everything. The number two was the need for the use of force in direct relationship to the amount of force used. The officer's articulation of why they believed reasonably that they needed to use this level of force to achieve their objective. But the third part that they made is, again, I think a double down in this whole argument. Because the Supreme Court said in determining whether a use of force is ex excessive, that we have to put much weight on the perception of a reasonable officer making a decision. And, and I think that focuses on the fact that, and the way I like to say it, Paul, is that the Supreme Court didn't come back and say, 
the perception of the video matters. The court came back and said, the perception of the officer matters. And somewhere along the way, the everybody seems to forget that the decision-making aspect is based on the perception. So since decision-making is your world, how does the perception and the decision-making work hand in hand? But there, I mean, there's, so in order to make a decision, we have to perceive a stimulus and we perceive a stimulus based on what's important to us in our environment. Uh, and so that's really what drives uh, the decision-making process is, is where, you know, what is capturing our attention, where's our focus of attention um, and, and what we're, what we're paying attention to. Right. So Wayne Gretzky famously says, right. I, I, I I don't go to where the puck is. I go to where the puck will be. We are we, we are prediction machines. And so we use stimulus in our environment to predict what's going to happen next. And, and so to understand decision-making and the reasonableness of that decision-making, we need to understand what stimulus, what the, the officer in the moment was paying attention to and why it was important to them. And, and really, there's only one source for that information. It's the officer's statement. And so capturing that statement as purely as possible is, is critically important. And it's important to understanding the officer's state of mind. You know, if their statement is talking about things like, you know, I suddenly started thinking about my wife and kids, that's really, really important. That's the officer's emotion and their perspective. And that tells us a lot about their state of mind. I mean, really, there's only one reason to start having your life flash before your eyes is that you, you're here for your life, right? That's a, that's a critical statement. And yet, if I watch the video and I'm just giving a statement about what occurred, I, I start to miss the emotion that I was feeling. I start to miss what I was actually paying attention to and, and why I was making the decisions that were important to me in the moment. And, and so we miss those critical decision-making components. And so really, there's two fatal flaws here. One, officers are relying entirely on the video uh, evidence uh, to support their case. They're saying, you know what? We've got video. I'm not going to give a statement. We've got everything that we need. Well, that's really problematic because now anybody can put any motivation and any decision-making process they want into play. Essentially, any attorney can come out and say whatever narrative they want about why the officer made the decision that they did. Uh, on the other hand, the officer is watching the video and they're writing their report to reflect what the video shows rather than focusing on and, and not watching the video and focusing on what they recalled, what what was important to them. In order for us to remember it, we had to perceive it, it had to be important to us. And the other side to it is emotion is attached to memory, right? And so when I remember something crystal clear and I'm able to vividly describe something, for instance, an officer sees a handgun coming out of the waistband and they're able to describe in detail uh, the serial number on the slide of the handgun as it's coming out. That tells us a tremendous amount about their focus of attention and their state of mind. Those are things that aren't going to be captured on a video and just watching a video and recalling the video uh, and, and, and saying what happened. We need to understand the, the officer's why, and the video can only taint that. It's only going to, uh, to change that. That evidence will always be available. It will be there. But the officer, the investigators, attorneys need to understand that the officer's statement isn't going to align with the video. It's going to align with the officer's perception and their decision-making process, and that's a separate piece of evidence. And the, from my understanding, the reason why we got to this level of concern is that whenever, a decade ago, uh, two decades ago, that 
there was some executives that charged officers with lying because they their video didn't match that that didn't match what was on the on the their statement didn't match what was on the video and and today i say it's it's not supposed to it's not supposed to um and we need to remember that Graham versus Connor in 1989 established that the objectively reasonable standards for officers' use of force, it held that officers' use of force is judged based on the totality of the circumstances from the perspective of the officer on the scene at the moment the force was used, without 2020 hindsight in circumstances that are tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving. Yeah. It, it, that's that's can't be any clearer to me. Now, I can't make you feel better about this because there is a fear factor associated. And I think both Dr. Taylor and I recognize that fear of the unknown. Um, but the the key part here is there has to be the next discussion, which is what's the process, right? And so my recommendation would be that the officer writes their use of force report and once the force report is complete, sits down with the supervisor to watch the video and identify if there's any physiological issues that wasn't properly recorded. Uh, would you agree with that process, Paul? Uh, absolutely. And if you're so, you know, some departments still have their their use of force reporting for low level use of force as part of their probable cost statement. Right. And, and so you are going to want to correct that because you don't want a Brady issue to come up around use of force. Uh, if you, if you're writing as part of your probable cause statement for an arrest. Right. And, and so what I'm recommending, very similar to what you, what you, what you just said, Eric, is that officers are, are giving their, their statement without watching the, and I'm just talking about for the use of force. And so you probably write this before you're writing the rest of your probable cause statement and doing the rest of your arrest report, you're writing your use of force narrative and what it is, why you use force, what you're perceiving your decision-making process as purely as possible without as little contamination as possible. And then right below that, whether you watch it with a supervisor or whatever your department policies are, you watch it together. And if you need to make corrections, for instance, you know, I, I, I delivered three baton strikes. And then right below that, after watching the video, I realized that it wasn't three baton strikes, it was five baton strikes, right? And, and, and you're you're correcting it immediately. So this is not a, a, uh, an addendum that you're coming back and, and filing later that looks suspicious that you're just trying to cover your tracks, that this is my statement as I remember it. This is my statement after watching the video uh, and and making any modifications. Um, and, and so for low-level use of force, I, I think that, that uh, both covers the officer from a Brady perspective uh, on arrest reports, uh, but also captures the officer's perspective without watching the video. So where have I seen this go since 2015? But one of the things that I'm seeing now and talking, because I, I have this, Paul and I were just talking about this. I literally had this conversation at least once a week somewhere in the country. One of the discussion points is, well, what's the detriment? What I'm starting to see now is that watching the video is being used against the officers as a credibility assessment in the courtroom. So remember this, when you put an officer on the stand, pretty much as I truly believe, you've all done great work and did it for the right reasons to the best of your ability. So you know, plaintiff's attorneys and criminal defense attorneys don't really have much to work with when they get you on the stand. 
the only thing they have to work with is any attempt that they can utilize to attack your credibility. Right? So one of the mechanisms that I was afraid of happening is starting to see is that they're using the video application as a credibility attack. I mean, so here's how it would go. They put the officer in the stand. They say, cross-examination time. Here's your report. Yes. Uh, did you write this? Yes. Was it contemporaneous to the incident? That means right after. And then they say, <laughs> they say, uh, uh, is that your signature in the bottom of the report? Yes. Okay. Officer, did you watch the video before you wrote this report? And if, if you say yes, the, the follow-up questions have gone like this. Officer, do me a favor. Could you read to the jury the first line of the report? Uh, on this date and this time, I responded to this location. I saw the subject wearing red boxer shorts carrying a stick. Great. Officer, did you, did you recall that? Did you perceive that? Or did you see it on the video? All right. And now, in the big picture, the question which we don't know the answer to is what does that do to the juror? What is the juror's perception of the fact that you had to watch the video to uh, to write your report, specifically about using force, and does that have a credibility uh, aspect? I don't know if you've had any experience with that, Paul, or anything directly related with that. I think I think that's I think that's interesting, and and what and that's and honestly, that kind of line of thinking is is one of the. The, the kind of the pushback that I get. So, so if there are differences in what it is that I say, or if they have to watch a video after the fact, or if they're inconsistent, attorneys are going to tear it apart. And, and here's what I tell people is that attorneys are going to find things to tear apart regardless. Yeah. Uh, it really, that's it, what we get paid for it, by the way. It really doesn't matter how, you know, how uh, good your report is. Uh, it really doesn't matter how consistent it is with the video they are going to find holes to attack you and the your credibility and the credibility of your report uh, regardless. So that's A, right off the bat. Yes, and, and, and certainly I think wherever there are gaps between, um, between an officer's memory and the objective facts of the case, whether that be the video or the hard evidence or witness statement, that is always going uh, going to be attacked. Whether or not that has an influence on a jury is is an empirical question, and I think we should do some jury testing on that. I actually think that's an area where we could do some fantastic research, Eric, uh, that crosses both of our lanes uh, beautifully. And I got to be honest with you, my thoughts started just going back to 2009 uh, with the with the shooting death of Oscar Grant in the BART railway system, where the officer received. 15 years for what is a clear mistake, but, but he initially refused to, to talk, got a better attorney, decided to talk, but wanted to watch all the video before he talked and then got 15 years for what is clearly a mistake. So something in there gave the jury a sour, a sour taste, whether it was not talking when the jury thought you should to cover something up or the fact that you couldn't talk without seeing everything that happened before. Some, and, and I just had this discussion with, with Chief Reynolds over the weekend. Something made that jury say that 
this guy's hiding something. Yeah. And when, even when he wasn't, and, and that's concerning. I think that's concerning. I think the other aspect of this is we need to understand what level of explanation do we need to understand that memory doesn't align with video. Uh, and, and this is true across the board. I mean, uh, what level of explanation do we need at the command staff level so that chiefs understand that an officer's memory is a different piece of evidence than the video and, and that an officer may be lying, but, but inconsistency with the video isn't necessarily a good indication of that. Um, and, and then how do we educate juries as well? Because this is something that they're going to have to look at. And there are going to be inconsistencies between the two. Uh, and attorneys are going to bring attention to that. Uh, regardless, it's going to happen. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that's always going to happen in every case. I think it's important for us to understand how it impacts juries. Uh, and it's going to be important for us to be able to educate juries. And so this really comes down to educating uh, attorneys as well that represent officers. They need to have an understanding of these factors. Uh, and too often I see I see attorneys who really don't have uh, uh, an understanding and, and will affect help officers write statements that align with the video, right? And, and that that's tremendously problematic. Um, and as an expert, if, if I've seen that's happened, I'm not interested in taking in taking a case like that because I have no way of assessing the officer's decision-making process. What I'm looking at is the attorney's decision-making process around the video uh, and, and the objective facts of the case rather than the officer's decision-making process. Yeah, and, and this is where you and I get into the the OIS interviews and all of that stuff. But if you're if this piques your interest a little bit, definitely uh, take a look at our Use of Force Summit in the fall, and also you know Dr. Taylor in the Association of Force Investigators because these types of topics are what drive the conversation every day between investigators. And as I wrap this up, and I'm going to give you a last minute to to conclude there, I, I, we just did another podcast with Dr. Taylor, and he said something which I think brings it right back to the issue. Let's not get into, oh, my God, what are we trying to do to an officer by not allowing them to watch the video? But he said something in, in training before that really struck me. This is about memory mining. This is about evidence collection. And, and you wouldn't walk into a crime scene and move a bullet casing because you said, well, it looks better over here. That's what he said in the, in the last segment. And I love that. That's exactly what we're doing here. We're saying, oh, let's, let's manipulate the evidence because we think it looks better in this way. Well, we wouldn't do that. Why would we do that when it comes to video? And Dr. Taylor, last thoughts? Yeah, 100%. It's it's the officer's memory of the event. That's the most critical piece of evidence that we have to understand decision-making uh, and the officer's perception. Why would we do anything to taint that? Allow the officer to give their statement. 99% of the time, it's going to explain why the officer made the decision that he or she made in that moment. But 99% of the time, the issue is going to come into to play when they try and give a statement that aligns with the video. And now having all of that information force is no longer reasonable if that's what they base their decision on all the information available in the video and the objective evidence of the case yeah of course it it changes the calculus but understanding that decision making process is critical and, and and it's critical from the officer's perspective i've seen more cases on the officer's side be problematic because they've written it 
based on the video rather than on their memory uh, than, than the other way around. I've never seen an officer's perception of the event be the problem in a case. Uh, and, and I have seen an officer's statement that aligns with the video be very problematic for the officer because, again, force is no longer reasonable. Um, and so, uh, yeah, let's not taint that evidence. Let's let's get that evidence as soon as as, as possible. Um, and there are some interview techniques that can that can really make that effective. And so, I think it's time that we we dig into that. We can't do business like we've always done it. We have to we have to do a better job with our use of force investigations, and they are fundamentally different today than they than they were when when even when I was in policing um, to 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, and and my ending thoughts are just this. I, nobody can do anything to address the fear. Your fear is real. I'm not going to sit here and say it's not. Uh, you know, there's a part of this job where I think you have to dance with fear on a daily basis. And part of that fear is uh, the unknown. And we don't like the unknown in policing. And that's how we got here is because people try to control the unknown. And there is one thing that I will tell you is that I know Dr. Taylor has, and I have, I've experienced officers that have been criminally charged and convicted because people tried to control the outcome of the investigation. So it's a double-sided sword, which is you have the fear and you have to put your faith in the system and you might not have a lot of faith of it every day. I get it. But the reality of that is you, the f controlling it is more detrimental of, uh, in the outcome than putting your faith in, in, in dancing with the fear. And, 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 that's, and that's truly doesn't make it any easier. Uh, do you agree with that, Paul? Oh, it's ab that's absolutely true. And, and like I said, when I was working in policing, my, there's been an evolution of thought for me. But as I've looked at these cases, it's so critically important that officers get their unadulterated perception in in the record in these cases. Uh, and if they're if they're not doing that, uh, then again, it allows anybody to fill in any narrative that they that they want, um, and that becomes really problematic. Well, as we end, uh, on behalf of Dr. Paul Taylor, myself, our families, our businesses, we thank you all for what you do. I know this is something you're going to have to listen to multiple times. Knowledge is power. Do the work. Read it. The time to argue about this is not three o'clock in the morning when you're waiting for investigators to show up. This is part of your, your, your training to prepare you to deal with situations. And smart officers will get their hands around this, their mind around this, before you're faced with that situation. If we can offer you any guidance, there's a lot of literature out there, a, a lot of guidance we can provide you. Uh, we thank you for all you do. The Guardian Mindset Podcast is sponsored by the DLG Learning Center. You can find us at www.dlglearningcenter.com. On the Learning Center, you can find an extensive library of articles, webinars, and online training. Listen, if you find the podcast informative, I'd recommend checking out our weekly Path of the Guardian video training and our monthly supervisory continued education program. These programs can be purchased by single users or department-wide. And if you want easy access to articles and information, please download the Daigle Law Group app. 
through either your Apple App Store or your Google App Store. And remember, help those who need your help, protect those who need your protection, and most importantly, keep yourself and others safe.